I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. From MCIE. 34 episodes, two feed drops, and three bonus episodes. Time to close the book on Season 10. My name is Tim Viegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, a show where with every conversation, we try to build bridges between families, educators, and disability justice advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. You can learn more about who we are and what we do at MCIE.org. We did it! Nearly 40 episodes in your feed this season, and we couldn't have done it without you. And we are going to officially close the book on a fantastic season with two of my favorite people, Dr. Carolyn Teagland and Dr. Carol Quirk. Carolyn is the CEO of the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, MCIE. She previously served as the Associate Superintendent for Cecil County Public Schools and has extensive experience in promoting and sustaining inclusive education. Carol is one of the founders and former CEO of MCIE, having transitioned to Director of Special Projects in 2023. She has worked closely with school districts in Maryland and other states to promote systems change and school transformation. In this episode of Think Inclusive, we'll discuss MCIE's history and its partnership with school districts since 1990. We highlight the importance of leadership in sustaining inclusive education and share success stories of students who have thrived in inclusive classrooms. We also discuss the challenges and trends in the educational landscape, including the focus on equity and the need for universal design for learning. We wrap up the episode and our season with a discussion on how families and educators can advocate for inclusive education and the future plans of MCIE. And now, my interview with Dr. Carolyn Teagland and Dr. Carol Quirk. Carolyn Teagland and Carol Quirk, welcome to Think Inclusive. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. This is a treat because, you know, I get to talk with a lot of different people. Um, and not everyone knows that I get to talk with uh, Carolyn and Carol quite a bit. You just never hear it. <laughs> so this is a chance to, for you to, uh, for us to pull the, back the curtain just a little bit uh, to, to um, just talk about what we've been doing this year, which is a lot. We've been doing a lot this year. Um, before we get into what we've done, uh, I wanted to set us up and, and maybe Carol, you can take this question first. Um, you know, Carol, you've been with this uh, organization, MCIE, for a long time. Um, how long has MCIE been partnering with school districts? Uh, well, we've been partnering with school districts since 1990 when um, we had some funds to pilot what we have since um, developed into our systems change process and school transformation approach. Um, but back in 1990 to 92, we piloted 
um, having students who were um, considered to have, I'm putting in quotes, severe disabilities, mm -hmm. um, who now we might consider to have significant intellectual disability, um, to be actually included in general ed classrooms in their neighborhood school, which was something that um, no district in Maryland was offering that opportunity. Yeah, and that turned into um, more work with districts across Maryland, correct? Yeah, uh, based on that pilot, we worked with elementary, uh, one elementary, one middle, and one high school in three different Maryland districts, a small, medium, and very large district. And based on that, we then wrote a grant for the State Department of Education for um, a uh, U.S. Department of Education-funded grant um, to promote systems change specifically for what they then called the um, kids with severe disabilities. And for the next five and a half years, we expanded the process that we had piloted and then further tweaked it based on our experiences across um, 10 additional districts in, in, in Maryland. Um, and we learned what worked. And um, we also then took the process we had and tweaked it a little bit more and took some elements out and added some in and a few things we realized we needed to put right back in because they were important. Mm -hmm. um, like our partnership model, which is that uh, we partner with um, at the leadership level and also at the school implementation level. And without that partnership, um, the work we create with the school district and the school won't be sustainable because we need to have people behind who've gone through everything with us all along the way. Right. Uh, I, I want to connect <laughs> the dots too for for everyone who's listening because um, Carol Quirk, Carol, uh, you are our, our former CEO, and also with us is our current CEO, uh, Carolyn Teaglin. And Carolyn, you were the associate superintendent for Cecil County Public Schools, which was one of our partners in the early 2000s. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and you know, when we talk about districts sustaining this work, um, I don't know, Carolyn, do you want? to just talk a little bit about that? <laughs> sure, I'm happy to. Um, so we started on this journey in the district where I was um, at the time, the executive director for elementary school education. Um, we were a district that was highly segregated. Um, nearly 55% of our population was in segregated settings and a lot of center programming. And um, MCIE came into our district and formed a a partnership with us and over many years, probably took us seven, eight years to um, really decentralize those programs and return children to their neighborhood schools um, into the general education setting um, and really found that children just flourished um, when they were able to be educated in gen general education with um, their peers. And we were able to sustain that work over a long period of time. Uh, we started with MCIE in the early 2000s and um, the work still continues in that district um, where they are between 88 and 92% um, fully inclusive with children. And it's a mid-sized district, about 16,000 students. So the work there has been significant over many changes in terms of superintendencies and board of educations. Um, and one of the things I will say about the work is leadership is key. Uh, leadership is key to sustainability and really focusing on making certain that the leaders in the district hold this as a core value and a priority really is the thing that helps sustain the work. Yeah. Um, so so we have a little bit of the history um, of MCIE and then also now with uh, a former you know school uh, district leader now coming on board as our CEO. Uh, what about now? Like what districts outside of Maryland that are, are we working with right now? Or maybe if you want to talk about also the districts, we, we, we continue to work in Maryland, but where are the districts that we're working with right now? Well, um, I want to just jump off a little bit, Tim, on what Carolyn was saying about Cecil County, because our work there really informed our next level of systems change. So as we go along with each new partnership, we're always learning and then yeah. we're always tweaking and modifying, but the major components um, have remained the same. Um, you know, we're working in Illinois and Virginia, Oklahoma, um, several districts inside of Maryland. Um, did I say Illinois? Yeah. Uh, what about Arkansas? And, 
Um, well, Arkansas, uh, we're doing a little bit of professional learning. Mm. So our work is not always systemic change. Sometimes it's getting ready for change. Sometimes it's uh, the work we're doing in Arkansas is around uh, professional learning for teachers who will be including children for the first time um, in elementary uh, grade band. But, you know, what we learned in Cecil County over those years, so thinking about like the early 2000s up to around 2008, um, was the importance of general education. So we went in at that time with a process that we had felt was pretty tried and true, but it was going in the special ed door because we were thinking at that time that we were going to support the district to include children with IEPs, children with disabilities. They didn't ask us to come in and evaluate their reading curriculum or to think about what was general ed doing. Mm. You know, that was like in that side of the house. And um, as we were wrapping up our work there and looking at, we were highly successful at placing kids and we were very successful for many kids in giving them a high quality, you know, based on parent input, based on teacher input, a high quality education and, and a significant impact on their lives. But there were some kids who were included in classrooms where the general ed teachers didn't really know what to do and special ed teachers didn't really know what to do in a general ed classroom. And that made me realize that we cannot, we can no longer go about this through special ed. We have to consider this a school-wide general ed initiative because that's where inclusion happens in general education. And special educators are important service providers within general education. And I think as we um, are working in other districts, and Carolyn can, has done a, most of that work this year, um, what we have to think about is the extent to which they are ready and able to do the heavy lift of changing policies, changing their practices, building the capacity of educators who may be scared you know, scared that they will fail or scared that their children won't be successful. Well, let's think about what, you know, what has happened this year. And I'm wondering if there's a story that sticks out uh, looking back, any, any sort of moments or big aha moments that, that kind of stick out for you as we think about um, the, the partners that we've um, been working with? Well, there were lots of great moments. So I um, would say that I have not had one bad day. Um, <laughs> so that's, this work is very um, important and it feels like it's making an impact. And the districts that we're in, regardless of where they are starting, they're having the conversation, which is really important because there are many districts out there, unfortunately, who are not having this conversation. So. Um, to any of our partners that are listening, um, I really give the partner districts a lot of credit for taking the leap with us, being willing to have the hard conversations because the work is complex and it and it can be challenging, um, but it is so worth it. So in terms of the so worth it, we are in a district where when we started the work in that district this year, there was a young man who was having significant behavioral challenges. Uh, and really, um, we were challenged with how to best support him um, and make him a, 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 a member of his class who was a participant and a learner. And there were so many episodes of real um, pretty um, intense behaviors that the educators were very challenged and quite Honestly, as Carol said earlier, scared, but not just scared at failing, scared for themselves and the other children in the classroom. So one of those situations where um, we really needed to have a plan to have a plan fast because we couldn't sustain what was happening in that classroom. And he was headed towards a non-public placement given the, the intensity and um, frequency of his behaviors. Um, he has, through much intentional learner planning with that district, professional learning with the educators, and also a true commitment by the educators to build a relationship with this child, which is which is big. They put aside their feelings of fear. They put aside their feelings of personalization of those behaviors and, and not, like it's hard not to personalize behaviors when a child is impacting your classroom and causing harm. So they really put aside all of those, those emotional feelings and really focused on the plan for this young learner. And since 
late January, he has had almost zero episodes of behavior. He is being very successfully included. Actually, as a child who we don't get to really see much anymore because he's being so successful that they have us on to working with other learners in the in the in the schools that we're in and we're not focusing so much on him anymore. So really um probably the greatest success story in terms of um a child who was really at risk for having his life outcomes significantly impacted because if he had gone into that non-public um, behavioral-centered program, his his life trajectory would have been fundamentally altered, most likely, because most children do not return from those kinds of placements. And um, he was named Student of the Month um, in May. So just... Um, by his teacher. So just, it just, um, and what I, I cannot understate the complexity of this child. So really when I say a significant story, it's not just about us and our role. It's about the educators being willing to set aside their emotions, their mindset, and really to invest in the child and really trying to genuinely figure out a plan of action. And um, this school, the leaders in the school, the educators in the school and leaders at the district level really just committed to figuring it out. And um, really what a change in his lived experience it was probably the most powerful anecdote of the year, although there have been many others. But that that's the most I think educators right now, Tim, are very focused on behavior mm-hmm. post pandemic. There's a lot of behaviors happening and sometimes we feel at a loss. And we want to um, label the behavior, put the behavior somewhere else because we're just challenged with how to, to deal with that, especially when people are physically getting hurt. So really to having that um, success story around the behavior, I think, is important to, to highlight. Yeah, that's wonderful. And for, you know, uh, like you said, for learners who are exhibiting these challenging behaviors, um, Having a process like individual learner planning, I think, is powerful, right? And it gives you something to do. The team gives you something to do. Um, and it's not just, oh, well, we got to call a behavior specialist, right? Um, does anyone want to just sh- share a little bit about our planning process? Well, we have a, a planning process at the district level for district um, thinking about policy, professional learning, capacity building, messaging. Um, so around those kinds of topics um, with representation from both general ed, special ed, student support services. Um, we also have a, a school-wide, what we call our transformation process, which is uh, pretty um, specific about the kinds of activities that um, schools engage in, even to the point of the first year having agendas planned out for the first six months of, of meetings. So we have a district level planning meeting. We have a school level leadership uh, team that meets monthly. Um, and then we have individual learner planning processes um, for kids who need more. And so everybody and everybody who needs more doesn't get like the package. There are a variety of tools. So our staff learn how to select the tools based on the learner needs um, and then our partners get access. So any of our partners get access to all of the uh, resources that we've developed. Um, they often adapt them, which is very exciting to me because they'll adapt them and customize them and sometimes make them better. And then we ask for ask for the better copy back <laughs> because we want to take advantage of all of their smartness. Um, so, you know, those are things that um, we don't have all of them publicly available, but, you know, several of them are. Um, but um, this is, we usually make some kind of way for our, our partners to access the variety of resources. And what I will say about that is um, educators, teachers really see the value in the planning process. I mean, it is the feedback we get consistently is, where has this, where has this process been my whole life? You know, I wish I had the time to do this on every single learner over and over and over again, because and it's, it's a, it is not a short process. I mean, it's not hugely lengthy, but um, educators walk out of those sessions really feeling like the time was well spent. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how um, I think it was you, Carol, who said it's customizable, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. It, yeah. It, you don't you don't do everything for everyone uh, and all the steps. You can really pull out what you need and plan accordingly. Right. There's a, a little boy that um, 
Carolyn um, ended up doing some support for the team um, this past school year, and I had supported the team in the previous year, and he was already included. And actually, he was included pretty well, but he presented both academic and behavioral challenges. And they, given those, um, they weren't sure whether he should stay. They kept thinking, well, if I pull him out, in their terms, and kind of intensely one-on-one -on -one teach him, he'll learn to read faster. And what they weren't really thinking about, because they were so focused on that academic proficiency gain, of what would he miss by not being there. And it wasn't just missing part of a reading lesson. It was really, uh, we knew that that would be a path to more and more time out. And so we created a new way to plan just for him around what they saw as their challenges. And we had three meetings and then, you know, building each one, building upon the next one. And then they're like, we've got it. We get it. We get how to do this. We've got it. We can, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> you know, we can keep going. So and, that know, was great. Carol, that's such a great example of um, this mindset in education that segregation somehow is better. Something magical is going to happen in a segregated place. And the reality of the lived experience for that child is they are not with their peers. They're not having the conversations. They're not participating in the activities. You can't replicate what happens in general education in a segregated setting is impossible. So this idea that somehow I'm going to catch them up while at the same time taking away the experience of being a fourth grader or a fifth grader or a first grader or whatever it is. And for this child, it ended up in him being participating in basketball after school and really having reciprocal friendships, which can't happen when you're in a segregated setting. And um, just the whole approach to him. And I had a conversation with his special educator last spring and she said, I do not feel like I'm valued in this process because um, my value is what I can do over here because it's special. And, you know, we had the conversation about what you provide that's special can be provided in general education, that that is the place for you to be to help that general educator understand how to generalize the special supports that you need to provide in order for him to access the curriculum. And she said to us, um, actually at the TASH conference, this team came to the TASH conference and uh, the educator said to me, this was life-changing. I will never be the educator that I was and I will never want to exclude children again. And again, a child with really complex support needs. Yeah, I think it, it just takes uh, the, the mindset change. And, and a lot of times it's seeing it for yourself, you know, <laughs> you can, you can talk about it all you right. want. Um, it, is that the experience that you have? Like it, it, when you, when educators have those aha moments, um, aren't they typically because they've actually experienced a change like in the classroom? Always. I, Tim, that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, this was not a journey that I planned to go down. Like I literally, this was happening in my district. My boss said to me, we are returning children to their neighborhood schools. We're starting with elementary schools and you're in charge of that. And I was like, okay, boss. And that, that's where my journey started. I didn't start with this passion for inclusion. I started with my boss telling me, we're going to do this. We're partnering with MCIE. You're in charge. And I expect this to happen. And so being the good little, you know, type A educator that I was, I was doing what I was told me to do. And it was my lived experience of watching children's lives fundamentally change, like fundamentally altered the course of their future in my district. That's why I'm here. And I think that that's, 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 that's when people start to believe in it. It's because they're seeing the, the power of it in real life situations. Yeah. You know, people are always identifying mindset as a barrier. And because, you know, you can say, well, the law says this research tells us 40 years of research, all these reasons. And someone will say, well, I still don't believe. And then people will talk about how do you change the mindset? And I have seen multiple times mindset changes, but only after they have witnessed the change. Now, sometimes, um, I know, Carolyn, you took a group to your old district to um, see what it looked like when a district and a school is, is working to stay on the journey of inclusion, and it is a constant. Um, and there was an administrator who had their eyes open. Now, is she a believer? You know, I think 
maybe on the path, um, but that experience of success and seeing kids change, that's going to turn, that's going to turn that around. Because then you start to question, well, if I, if we figured it out for this learner and this learner we thought was like an insurmountable challenge, then who, we should be able to figure it out for everyone. And if we know that the alternative is changing the child's educational journey fundamentally, as educators, if we're truly in the business for the right reasons, we should really have a gut reality check when we're mm-hmm. making those decisions. We have a lot of power. Yeah. And parents, by and large, trust educators to do the right thing. And it's not that I'm saying that educators are trying to do the wrong thing. I think it's, it's, it's nothing to do with that. It's mindset. It's the way that education has historically responded to children that present challenges. Well, I think, you know, what the last thing you just said really struck me because in every district and, you know, we're working in different states and different states have different regulations, even though they may be compliant with the federal regulation, IDEA. Um, what we see is that people believe, understandably, that whatever their district is telling them to do is the right thing, that that is the thing. Man, they, if they've never been out of their district, never been out of their state, they don't know that there are, in fact, other ways of doing things that, um, like in two districts that I've been in recently, literally our two states, districts in two different states, their regulations define programs. Like in Maryland, we don't have that. There's no, IDEA does not have anything in it about a program. It only has the IEP, the Individualized Education Program for a single child. It doesn't say anything about group EPs. So, group but in, EPs. <laughs> that is the best, it is, it is the true story. Never, progress, group EPs. Uh, Carol, I've never heard you say that before. Oh, well, it's in my mind. Um, but that's I, what it's like. I, I, I say it a lot. It's, it's what we discovered in, in my district where we started to move children from these segregated programs into, is I was looking at IEPs and all the IEPs were the same in these segregated programs. And it's, it, you know, in, an ED an classroom where the selective mute has the same IEP as the child that's around the furniture. Mm. Yep. You yep. know, it's. So the thing about, you know, in the actual regulations, when they have things like this is the autism support class Mm -hmm. and it is a self-contained class, blah, blah, blah. And then this is the functional life skills class. And in this class, these are the things we do. And then this is a resource room where children may go to receive sometimes services. But the thing is, it's a room. Everybody's got a room. You know, so what, why, what's within a room that makes one physical space more special and different in terms of accessing the general ed curriculum and making progress toward grade level standards, which is what the law requires. Mm-hmm. And exactly. if you put a bunch of kids together who don't talk, how are they going to learn how to communicate? Well, and I know what my experience has been, Carol, and you've had much more extensive experience than I have had. I have not been in one segregated setting where I have walked out and said, yes, magical things are happening in that setting. And, and I really think that that's part of the message is that what is the, the mindset of what's happening in those spaces and the reality of what's happening in those spaces, it's, they're two completely different things. Yeah. And I think I want to capitalize on what you said about, um, you know, really honoring the intentions of teachers. Yes. Um, and, and let's assume that presumed competence of teachers, presumed competence of students, but it is physically not possible to offer the quality, the breadth and depth of grade level instruction with with all children who are sometimes of different grade levels themselves, certainly of different abilities and capacities. You can't, you can't offer. Well, yeah. The I mean, you know, I mean, that's my story. You know, I, yeah. I spent, I spent yeah. years in self-contained classrooms. And at one point I was teaching sixth grade levels, you know, kindergarten through fifth. And like, how, how am I supposed to right. cover curriculum between kindergarten and fifth grade in one class? Even if you're Superman. Right. Yeah. You it's know? Just, I mean, yeah even if thing. I had the most well-behaved children, which I did yes. not. <laughs> and it, the educators are trying to do the wrong thing. Yeah. That is, I mean, aside from a very small percentage of people in any profession that might not be doing the right thing, educators go into education because they want to do the right thing. They want to impact the life of kids. Nobody's going into it trying to cause harm. 
Right. Educators are educators are amazing. You know, I love educators. Yeah, we, all, we all love educators. We all love educators. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, what are some what are some trends that you see on the horizon as you look at across the educational landscape um, that leave you um, feeling hopeful? I think the focus on equity right now. I think there is a push um, on really paying attention to marginalized groups. Now the go-to doesn't tend to be children with disabilities. So I'm hopeful that as we have these conversations about children who are historically marginalized, that we bring into the fold children with disabilities. But I do think that there is a bigger focus than it has ever been in my career, at least, on really paying attention and being intentional about how we address children who have been historically marginalized. And that leads us into the opportunity to have the conversation about children with disabilities. You know, Carolyn, the thing is, th um, that's true, everything you just said, but not everywhere. No, and that's true. Yes. We're, we're very lucky to be called upon by many of the states or districts who truly want to improve the equity among marginalized groups or, you know, where there are gaps in access, opportunity, and outcomes. Um, but, you know, we know that there are states where they're not allowed to use the word equity and they've taken out of all their education literature. So I think there's, um, I, I do agree with you, and I'm also a little worried um, that there are these locations where um, somehow they can talk about placing students with disabilities with peers, but they can't really out loud address equity. So that that is a concern. I agree with you um, 100%. Um, it's this balance of, it's almost like it's two ends of the spectrum right now. It, either folks are talking about it or they are working hard to not talk about it. The hopeful part of me is that because there is this um, tension, that the fact that there should, that there is a tension might help. Um, but I agree with you that it, in some places, is having the opposite impact. And the, the next layer to this is educators are very challenged right now. And the fact that we're seeing educators leave, leave the profession and not enter the profession in almost every single district that we're in, with the exception of one that I can think of, they are certifying people provisionally to be special educators, which is very concerning. So basically, if you have your bachelor's degree, you can get a provisional certification and then you can be providing services to a child the next day. Um, so that is something that is additionally concerning. And I think that, that what you're talking about, Carol, leads right into that is educators are disheartened and they're feeling like they don't want to be in the middle of the tension. Right. You know, one thing that I am hopeful about is um, in a variety of districts, seeing really good general education instruction. I know that we still have schools where the teacher's in the front of the class asking a question and kids will raise their hand. And so they'll call upon the kids who raise their hand and the kid whose head is on the desk never gets called on. And so we have an inequitable situation in there. But I'm seeing more and more really engaged, flexible groups, station teaching, um, kids being in charge of their learning or taking on, even in elementary school, um, when teachers are really strongly teaching and reinforcing rituals and routines for engagement, communication, transitions, 
the flow in a classroom can happen with a teacher ringing a bell or a teacher doing some simple movement, and then the whole class sort of transforms um, into the next activity, into uh, organizing their materials, putting their things away, uh, finding someone else to talk with. So I see kids being more in charge of their own management of their learning, which even in little, you know, little kids, it's very mm -hmm. exciting. Well, and Carol, we do have one school that we're working it with, one to two schools that we're working with in urban centers, where the work that they're accomplishing is really, um, is something people should go to see because the challenge of making that work happen in very high poverty, um, very ethnically diverse um, communities, it, and it's really about intentional leadership and really in those schools about tier one instruction, exactly what you're saying is that is the quality of what we're providing to everyone really high quality? And if it's not, how are we addressing that? And uh, if when you can accomplish it in the most challenging settings, it becomes a beacon for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Do you see uh, an em emphasis on universal design for learning in the districts that that we're working with or just in general. Um, the reason I ask is, you know, Carol, you brought up uh, learners owning their own learning or making choices and everything that, you know, we, you know, we've had Katie Novak on and we've had Mirko Chardin on both, uh, you know, excellent um, uh, people who, you know, write and talk about UDL. I'm just wondering about that connection. Um. I hear people talk about it. I think the way um, universal design for learning is conceptualized, um, it, it does have a lot of jargon, mm -hmm. and it's almost an academic effort to comprehend what's the what and what do I really do. Um, I think that you know we, we could all agree that designing lessons, thinking that I may have a blind child, I may have a hearing impaired child, I may have a, a child with autism. I may have a child who hasn't had breakfast and is coming from a traumatic background and may need some really serious relationship development. I think we can think about the physical environment. You know, we a child coming in with a wheelchair, can they navigate everywhere? Am I, you know, putting things in my room so that everybody can access? So if we're designing for universal access, of course, we're creating the foundation for anybody who might walk in the door. Um, making that happen with our instructional planning, I think is is pretty complex. Mm -hmm. So I hear people talk about it and they end up talking about little parts of it. Um, I, I actually don't know of any district, and I'm sure they're out there, that has done such comprehensive professional development and follow-up support for implementation that you would be able to showcase what you would see in a school. What do you think, Carolyn? I think the word complex. Uh, school districts are so challenged to, school districts are very challenged to get high quality tier one instruction at its basic level. Mm -hmm. um, Multi-tiered systems of supports. There are just not resources in districts to provide the level of professional learning that has to happen to truly have educators across the board. I'm not saying that there are not, you know, demonstration classrooms in almost any district where you have a teacher who understands these things. But to really train your teachers as a group, and I come from a district that was, by all accounts, if you look across the nation, mid-sized, to be able to provide the level of professional learning and job embedded coaching that has to happen in order for teachers to truly understand how to implement things like universal design for learning. That is just a very complex challenge. And there are so many other challenges that are more paramount to districts that are more immediate. Yeah. Um, differentiation, I do think districts do a large, largely do a pretty good job of getting teachers to understand or educators to understand the tenets of differentiation, but when you're really talking about UDL, that is a much more complex set of um, professional learning and really the job embedded coaching, which most districts don't have the funding to really do in a way that you would have to, to have robust implementation of the, those sorts of models. So you might be able to get it in pockets. You might have some places that are demonstration classrooms, 
But in order to truly have that happening in your district across all educators, that's a challenge. The 10 to 15 year commitment. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Now, you did mention MTSS or multi-tiered system of supports or systems if you have separate systems, one system if it's integrated. In a district we were in yesterday, when we first started working with them six years ago, um, we introduced multi-tiered system of supports as a foundation for being able to be fully inclusive. And we believe that with a solid multi-tiered system of interventions and supports in place, you, you are creating um, school structures that should be thinking about all learners. So as students are either less successful or they have a disability and they need more, they need specially designed instruction that the teams are planning collaboratively for increasing the intensity of an intervention and or how to embed the specially designed instruction within core or within an intervention. Now, this district took this on as a book study in our first year of engagement. And now about six years later, they ended up then creating their own MTSS committee to specifically focus on that. Um, they're at a point where they will be able to start rolling out. But it's, you know, been six years in development. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes it takes time, right? Yep. It takes time. And then any kind of turnover that happens, it, it, you know, that's the whole cycle of professional learning is you have new educators, new leaders every single school year. And and so, you know, I've led that work. It's challenging. Mm -hmm. And it's particularly challenging right now because workload issues are a major thing um, in school systems right now for teachers. So for educators who are, are listening, who, you know, maybe they... um they are in a, a district that is not as inclusive as they want it to be, or we have a lot of families that listen as well. And you know, maybe they're not in a district that is inclusive as they want it to be. They want to make an impact, but you know, where do they start? Well, families, you know, the, <clears throat> when MCIE first started our first couple years before our systems work, um, <clears throat> we had community organizing. And we had people who worked with families specifically to help them organize within school districts to um, message, you know, they had newsletters, they had messaging, meeting with board members, meeting with um, district leaders to try to promote what they wanted for their children in an organized fashion, um, letters to the newspaper, et cetera. And I, I'll never forget, it was in our second year and this, we had what we called parent educators. They were the or community organizers, they work with parents. And she said, you know, I'm working with these families in named three districts and their districts are beginning to listen to them. But you know what? My child is still in a segregated school. And so that was, for me, it was like all of this work we were putting in to support families and we were seeing some change. And I believe in community organizing uh, but that is a very long road, and it may not impact the people doing the actual organizing, the actual work of it. Um, I think, you know, families, if they have a child with a disability, they may also also have other, you know, service needs, medical needs, other kinds of things. Um, and it's hard to place that burden on families. You know, we want families to advocate for their child, um, but they shouldn't have to be responsible for changing a system. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, speaking before board, you know, there are all kinds of things that families can try to do to promote that. Um, but it, I think it's hard for families to have to take that on. Yeah. We, the school districts that Carolyn is working with now is real, are, are really where it, the district leaders said we need change. Now, doesn't mean the principal said yes or that all the teachers said yes, but the leadership at the district level is influencing because our approach in this case is not going to be a hammer. Um, you know, you have to do what we say because we're right, you're wrong. But it's really a partnership and it's really understanding where people are coming from and then giving them information and tools to begin to make the change at the rate that they're capable of, given, you know, their competing priorities. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, leadership is key. Um, families can advocate and create a groundswell, but if leadership doesn't understand and buy in and have a mindset change or a willingness to have the conversation, 
Um, it is very challenging to get any kind of real systemic change happening. Um, I do think that some of what we're seeing in terms of our projects beyond um, the state of Maryland is that post-pandemic, we have more children presenting with greater needs and the solution cannot be segregated settings because that just doesn't, there comes a tipping point where that it's very obvious to leadership that this is optically not okay. You know, and so I think that some of what we're seeing in terms of our increased presence in other states is this increase in children with need who may or may not have a disability. And so just really highlighting the idea that segregating those children is not going to solve the issue of the fact that we have children with greater needs. Having partners who can help you with children with more complex or, or more support needs is really the answer to the question or the problem. Mm. And so uh, looking to our next school year, um, what are some hopes and dreams that you have? I like hopes and dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm so excited about all the partnerships that we've established this year and where they're going for next year, because in every case, every case, I can't think of one where this is not true. There is a plan for us to be continuing in those places. So that's really exciting because the work that we started this year is going to continue in some way, shape, or form. Like Carol said, some folks are in readiness. Some folks are ready for, for system, you know, system and school transformation. Um, but in every system that we were in this year, there is a commitment by the leadership at the district level to really further this work. So that's exciting. I'm really excited about that. Um, you know, Carol keeps saying we've got to figure out you know, a transition a little bit if you're going to be CEO. <laughs> Maybe not have to travel so much, but I don't know which district I would say I'm ready to like give up to somebody else. So, you know, <laughs> it's just very exciting um, what I think is on the horizon for these districts where, where we've been uh, partnering over the past year. Yes, agreed. <laughs> and if you're listening and, and you're thinking, wow, I'd really love to work with MCIE. These seem like fantastic people. How would they do that? Well, they should contact us and let us know, uh, you know, what their interests are and what their experience is. Um, we have, it's, MCIE has always been an interesting organization in that every year our work shifts based on, you know, different funding from different sources. Um, and as we've grown, we, you know, become more known in other areas outside of Maryland. There's probably folks in Maryland who've never heard of us, while there are folks in, you know, a dozen other states who um, are in regular contact with us. Um, so, you know, it's always exciting to think about what's happening. And, um, Tim, just like you're in Georgia, we're in Maryland. We've had staff in Virginia. Um, we've had, we have a staff member in North Carolina. Um, you know, as we are expanding um, in our geography, we will also want to look at um, staff or contractual folks in other states that may be interested in um, doing some of the work with us, alongside us, but in other locations. And I would say, Tim, as a former district leader, if you want to see academic outcomes improve for your learners, this is the way to do it. It's hard work, but it makes an immediate impact in terms of graduate increase in graduation rates, decrease in dropout rates, increase in all those assessment markers that are important um, to accountability. And um, this is hard work to accomplish, but this is the work that will make that impact on those accountability measures that everybody's so worried about. In my mind, that's the reason to do the work, except that it means that kids are achieving more, which is great. Um, but I do know that that speaks to district leaders. They are really concerned about those markers. And because it's tied to their, you know, their report cards. Yep. Right. Right. So, I mean, really, you know, inclusive education is really, it, it benefits everyone. It does. Carolyn Teaglin and Carol Cork, thank you so much for spending time with me on Think Inclusive. It's a pleasure, Tim. Yes, Tim, as always, a pleasure. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Viegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. Attention school leaders, did you know that you can team up 
with the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education and promote inclusive practices in your school or district, regardless of your location. MCIE has partners in Maryland, Illinois, Virginia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and more joining us in this work. Our goal is to expand partnerships in every state in the U.S. and beyond. The first step is to start a conversation with us. Visit our contact page at mcie.org contact and let us know that you want to transform your educational services to be inclusive of all learners. Also, please mention Think Inclusive in your message to let us know how you found out about MCIE. We can't wait to hear from you. A special thanks to our patrons, Kathleen T, Gabby M, Melissa H, Mark C, Kathy B, Joyner E, Jarrett T, Aaron P, and Carol Q for their support of Think Inclusive. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.